This is the Data Download, your guide to upping your game when it comes to managing and accessing data in your organization. For Calibra, I'm your host, Jay Miller. Pretty much the most important question that a chief data officer has to answer these days is how to show the value of the data work they do and how to value the data, right, that they bring to the organization. These are pretty simple concepts, but in practice, they can be really tough challenges to solve for. I think there's some hope out there these past few years as many leaders have begun to crack the code, right, of valuing data. Well, we're going to figure all this out today because, of course, we have an expert who's going to help us break it all down. My name is Sanjeev Mohan. I am a founder and a principal analyst of an advisory firm called Sanchmo. Prior to this, I was at Gartner, where I was part of the data and analytics team. Now, as an independent analyst, I research vast amounts of data and analytics topics, and I go very wide and very deep. I spend a lot of time with a number of very large cloud providers, startups, software providers, and try to stay ahead of all the new developments that are coming into place. One of the things that I like to do is, is, is to connect the dots between various moving parts in our space. So given that vast experience that you've got uh, in the data and analytics space, meeting with so many different experts and providers and, and, and all of that, you know, one, one question that kind of comes up more and more these days, especially among leaders is how can we know the value of the data work that people do, that practitioners are doing, or that teams are doing? Like, how do we think about the value of the data work that we're doing, like ROI, et cetera? So Jay, the question you asked is probably the most important question the CDO has to answer. The CDO's main job is to prove the value of data that is being collected and analyzed. How do I know that all this investment that has gone into my building my data pipelines and, and my entire operational and analytics is actually uh, bringing any value? So this is a reason why we are starting to rethink how we do our data analysis. For example, one uh, space that I am very keen about is called data products. And one of the things about data products is that it becomes a tangible way for me to then ascertain what is the value of the data work that I'm doing. I can now measure the consumption of data. If I've created a report or a dashboard, I, I don't really have an idea as to what was the cost and what is the return on the investment. But with a data product, I can now start measuring how many products did I launch within, let's say, a month. Prior to that, you know, it used to take us literally weeks and months to launch a new artifact. I can also see who is using it, who is not using it. And if it is not being used, then like any other product, I should retire it. So this is very different from what we did in the past where what we did was we did a project, we rolled off the project, all the work, like temporary tables and all the stuff that we built, 
just stayed on for eternity. And then we migrated all that into the cloud and we kept incurring cost. So if a data team is managing a number of reports, data sets or databases, right, that the reports are reading from, each one of those things doesn't necessarily, I'm guessing, rise to the status of being called a data product. Only some population of those things is really something you might consider worthy of calling it a data product in order to manage it that way. I published a book called Data Products for Dummies. So I went to extreme lengths trying to explain what is a data product. In spite of that, the confusion persists. And some people say, well, what's a data product? It's, it's any other data set. But I beg to differ. There are a lot of components that go into producing some outcome. Should those components be called data products? And the answer is no. A data product has a designated business value that it has been built for and it is delivering. If it's not delivering that, then it is not a data product. So a report could be a data product. A machine learning model could be a data product. A view could be a data product. There are certain characteristics that make it a data product. First of all, the most important thing is it is built with product management oversight. So it has a whole life cycle from design to development to deployment to retirement. Like I said earlier, that these things, if they're not being used, should be retired because it's not just cost, it's also risk. What if somebody starts using a model that has not been trained in 18 months, but it is sitting there. A new person joins a company and says, oh, look, there's a model called customer churn. I'll just start using it. And now they're going to get wrong data. Also, how is it going to be consumed? What is the availability, SLA? What is the data governance policies on that? So those things are defined. We put it in some form by which the data producers and data consumers can communicate. And we call that a data contract. So that's how we built data products. I mean, they have a version number. We can have a new version of a data product. When we have a new version of data product, then it's backward compatible with a previous version. And at some point we'll go retire the previous version. I love this framing. And I, I think it just makes very intuitive sense, you know, to be purposeful in what qualifies as, as a data product. There's intent behind it, ownership, a life cycle, a plan, a strategy, goals, uh, a, a market for it, right? Whether that market is maybe your internal employees or maybe there's a commercial market. A lot of people actually think that uh, data products are only for monetization purpose because a lot of data brokers have typically had a data product like Experian or Dun & Bradstreet, FactSet, they've all had these, but that's changed too. A data product is delivering a business value. It may never be monetized, or if you want, you can monetize it. It is delivering at the end of day, trust. You can trust that data product. There is some level of accountability. If the CFO feels there's something wrong with the dashboard that he or she is using, they know who is an owner and who they should talk to. Prior to that, it was like, well, I don't know, this data came from SAP, then it got enriched in Informatica, and then DBT came in, and then Looker came in. So there's no idea who was responsible for that, you know, but now there is a single person who is accountable. Prior to using this thinking, 
people are thinking about those data, I don't know, assets, let's say, in terms of what tool they're hosted in. And what you're saying is, sure, the tool matters, but really what, what at the end of the day, a business person needs to know who's the responsible person to get answers from, right, about that particular product. Technology is easy. Processes are hard. People are impossible. So in an organization, let's say these are internal data products that are used, you know, within an enterprise, just to, as an example, I think you mentioned churn. How do consumers of these data products find these things? Like, what are your views on the right way to approach that part of the challenge? One of the first attributes of a data product is that it should be discoverable. How do I even know it exists? So for that, data products should become yet another item that resides in a data catalog. So logically, you know, I call it a data products catalog, but a data products catalog is nothing but a data catalog. When a user wants to do, let's say, customer churn, instead of reinventing things from scratch, they should go into the data products catalog and they should try and, you know, be able to see, is there a, a customer churn? Maybe there is more than one. Marketing department could have one. Sales department could have another one. They are all part of the data products catalog. So you can now see when was it last refreshed? What is the data quality SLA or guarantees on that? And so all these things that you had no idea about and you were blindly consuming, now you can. You can also see, by the way, who else is consuming that data product? Let's say you are a new person in the company and you're still learning the ropes, you're onboarding, You've been given this task to do some customer churn. You go into the catalog. You can see who's using and discover your tribe. And now you know, oh, okay, so I know this person's using it. I, I know who the owner is. Maybe this is the one I should use. Because a data product can become an input into a derived data product. I could be in marketing and I could say, you know, before I even do customer churn, I need to understand who is my customer? How do I even define customer? You know, we talk about SaaS companies should measure daily active users. Do you know how hard it is? What is the definition of daily? What is active? What's a user? You need some sort of a method to the madness. Marketing department could come up with a data product and then the salespeople could say, this is great. I'm going to take this authorized customer master data product, but marketing doesn't care about sales and forecasting. So I'm going to add my own business logic on top of this marketing data product, and I'm gonna create a sales uh, data product. So this is how powerful this chain of data products can be. Your data catalog can help consumers find existing data products, right? Uh, and then by doing that, any consumer can then also potentially play the role of a data product manager or producer too, by combining and making derivative data products using some of these original ones uh, as their, let's say, supply chain. You mentioned something before that data quality SLAs, et cetera, are part of, you know, some of the attributes of what a data product must maintain, right? You have to maintain those attributes. So for thinking about products, you know, like a car as a product, 
Are there crash test dummies for data products? How do we actually approach the data quality challenge with, with data products? There is a new, relatively new space that has come about. It's called data observability. We used to call it data quality monitoring. It has come a long way. Data quality monitoring of the past was very rule-based, based on this certain rule, Either you, you let the data go to the downstream system or you block it, but rules are painful. How many rules can you create? Today, it's very common for even small, medium-sized enterprises to have almost 100 different SaaS tools. Yeah, so I may get my customer data from SAP. I may get my customer who attended events in HubSpot my sales data could be in Oracle uh, where transactions are stored, but then some data is in the CRM like Salesforce. So when you've got data in all of these places, you need to be able to find out how do I determine whether this data is of high quality or not. So you want some sort of like AI driven mechanism that can assess the incoming data and then learn from it. You know, when COVID hit, there was actually a very interesting example where some retailers thought they had data quality problem. And actually it wasn't a data quality problem. The problem that they were seeing was that the sale of shirts had gone up, but the corresponding sales of pants had not. <laughs> we live in a Zoom world. <laughs> How do you create a rule for that? You know, so you basically use AI to constantly create like a pattern and then use some advanced statistical analysis and then try to determine uh, what the rule should be and if there's any anomaly. With data observability, one of the important components is called monitoring notification. So you can then notify people who are responsible for data quality well in advance. Those people can then start doing a triage to find out where did this problem originate? Sometimes the problem may not be fixable. If the problem cannot be fixed, then the data producer is going to put it in the contract and say, you know, the, the data quality level of this is only 86% or 94%. So I, as a consumer, know that there's some room for error. So this is a clarity or the transparency that you're getting in a data contract that accompanies a data product and it resides in a data products catalog. So you're saying that in the context of looking at your data product in a data catalog, data quality and observability are key characteristics for your data products. And they very much relate to what you called them data contracts, right? So a producer is meant to have their data product live up to certain standards, quality score above a certain amount. And if it dips below that amount, it's violating the contract. And there need to be some, let's say, repercussions for contract violations, one would think, right? So this is a relatively new, I think, concept, and it's gaining a lot of traction. I've been reading about it a lot too. So tell me more about the, the data contract phenomenon that we're hearing about. One of the reasons why it is so important these days is because the scale at which we are doing things is so massive compared to in the past. In the past, when I used to work on data warehouses and build reports, 
I only had to worry about maybe three or four different source systems. And they were all, by the way, in my data center. So they were all inside the firewall. And how many consumers I had, I had maybe 20, 30 analysts who would be running reports, financial analysts, and, and so on. But now I've got so many data sources and so many, so data is a victim of its own success. Everybody wants access to data and they want it now. And they want it in the format that they want. And they want to consume it in the analytical tool of their choice. My department may consist of a bunch of people who love running SQL commands, but your team may say, no, we are data scientists. We like to fire up a notebook and write a PySpark code. And then somebody may say that, no, we are the Gen Z's or, or the latest generation. We use conversational chatbot. So we want to ask a question. So that's coming, right? So when you have this diversity of consumers, use cases, data sources, you need to have a way to communicate. What is it that you, Mr. Data Producer or Miss Data Producer is delivering? That's a data contract. And so that data contract, when you discover the data product, it gives you the list of attributes. For example, it tells you that if you like to use an API, then here is the API endpoint. This is the version number that was last updated on a certain date. Here are the security rules. If you are based in US, then you can access it. But if you are coming from Germany, maybe you don't have access to that. Or maybe row level security will be applied automatically based on the region you are in. So you can only see the data that pertains to you. And finally, you know, what is the schema of this data product? So I can write my SQL statement. So it's a very uh, advanced way of sharing the attributes of a data product. These attributes can now be put into maybe a JSON uh, file or a YAML file. So that contract can now be machine read by a downstream application as well. So it's not just for the end users to see, it's also for applications to be able to read what the contract says. We're still, as you can tell, very, very early stages of the whole generative AI. I think there's a little bit of a roadblock, a massive roadblock. How do I know the data is correct? We haven't fixed the data quality problem, right? So if I'm directly asking questions, I need to know I can trust this data. I don't have that trust on raw data. Data products provide me that, but we just talk about raw data. Second problem is we don't understand exactly how the neural networks work. We really don't, even the experts don't really know how this, this very complicated multi-layered neural network really is able to predict and give us the, the right answers. So you put an LLM directly on your data, how am I going to guarantee that A, it's not going to hallucinate, B, it's not going to reveal some data that it should never have revealed, See, maybe it'll do some sort of like, you know, we had this problem called SQL injection. Maybe we'll have some LLM injection. So these are all the unknowns we have right now. So 
There's so much we don't know. So I think, again, my own opinion, the get out of jail card to using an LLM on your raw data is a data product because I solved so many of these problems uh, that I just mentioned. Security, I, I built that into the access. Quality, I am giving you some sort of a guarantee uh, through an SLA. Uh, access methods, some sort of uh, accountability and ownership. So to me, if you have raw data and you expose it through a data product. That data product has many interfaces. One of them could be a chatbot that allows me to ask a question in English, and then an LLM converts it into a vector embedding. That vector embedding then uses a data products output, does similarity search, and gives me answer back in English. That is where I currently see the future heading towards applying the data product thinking framework characteristics that you described at the top of our, our meeting here today, applying that to how you manage your artificial intelligence solutions, your AI solutions is no different. And in fact, by doing that, you're adding layers of trust in what those AI models are reading from so that the output from those models can then therefore have a better shot at being good, at being trustworthy. So that data product concept absolutely applies to how you're managing your AI solutions. It's, that's kind of what I'm hearing you say, yeah? hundred percent, yes. It's a new space, you know, and it, it will evolve over the next couple of years. Just for our audience, what, when you said the word hallucination, what, can you tell us what that is? So a lot of people are upset that these uh, LLMs hallucinate. The bad news is you have to get used to it. What I mean is we can reduce hallucinations, but I don't think we'll ever get rid of hallucinations because we are now working in a very different environment that is probabilistic. It's very different from SQL statement. A SQL statement, you run it any number of times, it will give you exactly the same answer if the data has not changed. But you can ask the same question in very different manner, same question, but depending upon how you ask, you may get different answers. And that is exactly how a probability-based model is supposed to respond. And sometimes this may not be a bad idea. So let's say, Jay, you are going to Granada, Spain, and I'm going to Granada, Spain, and you ask a question, what should I do in Granada, Spain? I ask the same question, but because we have different likings, characteristics, there's some other environmental things, you may get a different result than I do, and that's fine. But if you're going to ask a question, tell me how much were, were my sales in the Northwest region, break it down by salesperson, maybe you should not ask that question to an LLM. It's a language model. What's happening is absolutely mind-boggling. So. Every company has an issue with, will my customers renew next year? So customer churn. We talked about customer churn, so I'll stick to that example. If I use my traditional way of determining customer churn, I can run a SQL, a very sophisticated SQL command, or maybe I can write a machine learning program and I can say, you know, give me a list of customers who have the highest propensity to churn. And it gives me the list. 
what do I do now? I take that list and I give it to the salesperson. I'm like, here is your list. Make sure these people don't churn, otherwise you're fired. And the sales guy says, well, what am I supposed to do? So if we go down this combination of a deterministic with a non-deterministic, the LLM can say, look, I understand this customer. I've been trained on vast amounts of data. And here, let me give you a customized action plan for each of these potential prospects or customers who may churn. Now, I have some sort of like documentation. It may not be 100% correct because of hallucination, but maybe it's 80% there. That's 80% more efficiency, right? So now I've got my list of potential customers to churn, and I have an action plan for each one of them. The salesperson can now do whatever tweaking he or she needs to do, and we've certainly embarked upon a new potential advantage this company now has by using both the traditional and the generative AI applications together. Yeah, yeah, and no, I mean, the potential for that is is astounding, and that's just that one example. Uh, so, so it's uh, terribly valuable. That said, if an AI hallucination means it produces something that's just blatantly incorrect, it made up an answer, if that salesperson in your example is getting a list of accounts to go save, to prevent them from canceling. And if your model made up one of those accounts <laughs> that it just doesn't exist, you know, we don't even sell to that company. How do we provide levels of trust to that salesperson who's been given that list and action plan when the model is telling them about clients that don't even exist? Are we going back to principles here? Good data product management? Like how do we how do we help solve for that? So there is a, a concept that has uh, become quite popular lately called RAG, which is retrieval augmented generation. So this is this whole idea of let's retrieve the data from a corporate data set and then create a prompt which is sent to the LLM. Instead of me going to a chatbot and asking uh, an open-ended question and chatbot was trained on public data, it has no idea about my corporate data. So by doing RAG, we are trying to reduce this hallucination because we are very carefully creating the, the right context for the LLM to act upon. And we're telling LLM that ignore everything else like outside the realm, just use this prompt and then give us a result. So that's, that's one thing. The second thing that I also want to say is that one thing we should always keep in mind, a lot of these LLMs are co-pilots. You are the pilot. So use your common sense and say, well, okay, thank you, LLM. We don't even have this account and you've given me an action plan for this. I'm, I'm going to just reject it. So we need that, that human intelligence on top of the knowledge that the LLM is providing us. You've had a really you know, fascinating career. You talked about uh, being at Gartner. You talked about you know, being an independent analyst, having worked with so many so, so many bright individuals and companies over the years. How, how did you how'd you get here? What was your career path like? How'd you, how'd you land here? I got into the data space a long time ago. 
And I worked at Oracle in my early parts of my career. It was so funny because I always thought of myself as somebody who would always be in the data space, data management. But then things were kind of boring, you know, ERPs came in and I was like, really, I don't want to be doing this, dot-com boom is happening. So I uh, switched into web development and just being, actually I was still a data architect, but I, was, I got more onto e-commerce, e-business and that space. And I was very happy doing that. From that, I moved on to being a management consultant. Uh, I worked for a company called Booz Allen Hamilton. So uh, by the way, that was that was quite a journey for me because my deliverable changed from being a PL SQL stored procedure and a data model to a PowerPoint deck. And that was a very difficult journey for me. I, I'm Now I can look back and say, I did not very easily fall into that. And I couldn't even understand why would somebody pay hundreds of dollars an hour to get a PowerPoint deck. Well, it's the story that you're telling with, with your information. That's that's the thing that you're telling with your PowerPoint deck, right? It's really important to mix your hands-on, your technical knowledge with top-down, because unless you can tell a good story to the decision makers, your story will never be heard. So I did that, but while I was doing that, something magical was going on in the data space. You know, Hadoop came into the picture. I know Hadoop is is not considered sexy enough, but anyway, NoSQL came in. Cloud just, you know, took these databases to the next level. And I came running back into the data space. And that's what I, I was covering at Gartner. And here is a funny story. Since you asked me about my journey, this must have been six or seven years ago. I got a inquiry from a client and the client said, I want to ask Gartner, what should be my strategy and my process to do GDPR? And I paused. I asked him, I'm sorry, GD what? What, what did you just say? I'd never heard of GDPR because it, it was just coming in. And all of a sudden I realized that there's a whole world of data governance which is much maligned, but it is so important to be successful in any data initiative. So I jumped headfirst into data governance. And all of a sudden I was now doing data governance every single day. So, so I combined my love for data basis with data governance. So data observability, data ops, these are all basically use cases of metadata. So I think metadata becomes really important, even data security, identity, privacy, quality, that is what I bring to table. So I did that for many years at Gartner. And then after that, I decided that, you know, this technology is moving really fast and Gartner has been an amazing place for me to build my knowledge, build my brand, but it's time for me to go and expand my coverage, talk to more people. Uh, you know, Gartner has a very important responsibility to its customers, so it tends to stay very grounded. And I wanted to be on the edge, on the bleeding edge. 
So that's why I left. And now every day is, is, a, is a new experience. In fact, I sometimes joke, I wake up every day uh, with a blank sheet of paper and imposter syndrome. I mean, even what we discussed in this call, a lot of this is where I feel the technology is headed. Who knows, in 2024, something new may come up and then we'll have to pivot again. If we were recording this this very conversation at the very beginning of 2023, you would not have asked me about AI or Genia because we were literally just scratching the surface and now every conversation about Genia. Next year, it may be about something else. And one of the things that I tell people all the time is my own point of view is always evolving as I learn more. Well, there it is. I think we've got some answers for CDOs on how to show the value of data work and the value of their actual data. To do it well, treating data as a product offers us a framework, right, for measuring that value. Firstly, via the usage of that data product. And then to value the work that us data people do, we can also then measure, let's say, how many data products have been created. Are we creating them faster now than we were before, right? There's some targets to reach for. And in order to call something a data product, there are several key characteristics that just have to be present. Otherwise, it's just a bunch of data, right? For one thing, data products should be driving some sort of value, like I just mentioned. And they have to you know, have availability and quality expectations, right? We'd call that an SLA or a service level agreement. We then have to manage the life cycle of a data product. They'll often need to be enhanced over time, monitored, and eventually retired when, you know, they're no longer needed or used by those consumers. So now that we have a data product, who does all this stuff, right? Who's managing these characteristics? The data product manager, right? Or the owner. This is going to be really key. Consumers need to know who to reach out for to get help on a data product. It's really as simple as that. Anyway, I have to say this conversation... It had to be about the best way for us data people to get a handle on what it means to make a data product, what makes data valuable, and what it takes to manage it over the long haul. So toward that end, it's time for a shout out. Of course, thank you to Sanjeev, but really it's it's a congratulation moment on your first book, Data Products for Dummies. Congratulations. Everybody, go to the show notes, check it out, and, and get the info on that. For Calibra, this is The Data Download. I'm your host, Jay Militer, and we'll see you next time. even more insight into managing your data, visit Calibra.com slash podcast for additional resources on the topics covered in our show. Be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss a new episode. And a five-star review certainly doesn't hurt our chances with the algorithm. It's all about the algorithm, isn't it, folks? It's a great way to help us reach new listeners, and we truly do appreciate your support. The Data Download is a production of Calibra in collaboration with Stories Bureau.